You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Woman on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. Welcome to Woman on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Ayan Sherwa. In June of this year, ABC News boss Justin Stevens sent out an all-staff email. In it, he apologised to staff who experienced racism and bigotry at the National Broadcaster. This apology came after an internal staff advisory group investigation into the experiences of Indigenous and POC staff at the ABC. Staff at the ABC shared accounts of racism and bigotry and expressed disappointment at the internal complaints process. As damning as this story is, it's not the first time that Australia's media landscape has come under scrutiny. In 2020, Media Diversity Australia released their report, Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories? And their findings were unsurprisingly bleak. They found that Network 10 senior management leaders are mainly from Anglo-Celtic backgrounds and that newsrooms often recruit from a graduate pool, which means that unless you attend an elite university, your chances of making it in Australian newsrooms are slim. To put these issues into perspective, I contacted Nicola Joseph, a seasoned journalist who's worked at the ABC, SBS and other media outlets. She was also one of the pioneers of Radio Skid Row, an activist grassroots community station based in Sydney. Stick around because later in the show, researcher Shelley Macklip explains the barriers to seeking abortion in Australia. She also discusses what the end of Roe versus Wade means for women and birthing people in Australia. But first up, let's go to Nicola Joseph as she shares her entry into journalism. I think in a lot of ways it was just by accident. I do remember being in the last year of school and thinking I might want to do law. And um, one of my teachers, an English teacher, said, you're quite a good writer, you should think about journalism. And so I kind of looked at where journalism courses were and there was one in Bathurst and I kind of, I guess, saw it as an escape route from a quite conservative Lebanese family, like, culturally conservative, especially in relation to the to the girls in the family. And I was the second eldest. So in a lot of ways, I chose journalism as this kind of way of escaping um, the grips of the family. This was in the 70s, remember, where people were kind of starting to, you know, be really liberated. And I wanted to be involved in that, in the politics and so forth. And, you know, I was getting quite a bit of grief from my family so I chose journalism so I could leave home it was the only reason they'd let a Lebanese girl leave home back then was for her education right and that's where I ended up in a in a very new course in Bathurst it was one of the first um, communication degrees and it was quite well regarded in that it had already produced in it I think I was in the third year of it um, and in the first two years that it produced you know, some of the prize positions that you get when you enter the, the media, like um, the cadetships in places like the ABC with programs like AM and PM were 
were really big to get one in current affairs and to get one in news was always um, seen as being a great prize as well. So um, quite a few of the graduates ahead of me had already moved into that, mm. um, into those positions. Yeah. But I was the only person of colour. There were no Indigenous people in that course. Some came later, some great achievers, in fact, um, some high achievers that, you know, Lorena Allen, who's a good friend of mine, who is the Indigenous editor at The Guardian, did, um, went to Bathurst as well a few years after me. But at the time that I was there, I was definitely the only person of colour studying journalism, although there was one, um, I think, an uh, Asian guy who had um, was, was doing kind of video or, or film, something like that, but that was it. Hmm. So you escaped into journalism and were you able to find that freedom? What was your experience like? As a student, the experience was terrifying. Like I'd never really been in kind of the full company of white people, of Anglo-Australians. It was kind of eye-opening for me. Um, I'd grown up in a very big extended family and that was kind of how we were policed in much the same way as, I guess, you know, women get policed in the village although we we did find out that actually our cousins in the village had a lot more freedom than us which was really annoying when we were teenagers but I don't want to portray it too heavily because I think in a lot of ways my family is quite progressive but mm. you know I really did break down the barriers of leaving home that I was the first one on both sides of the family to leave home and it was you know my grandmother both grandmothers didn't like it for different reasons but you know so the experience at, at uni, I guess, in some ways could be seen as what prepared me for what the experience would be in the media. And, you know, interestingly, in my the thesis, in the research that I'm doing where I've talked to other people, a lot of people tell that same story that, you know, it was uni that kind of got them ready to work in, in what is just such a stubbornly white industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it really did prepare me, but you know, it was strange. It was alien. Um, I think when I went for the, you know, prize job of the ABC news cadet, um, I was interviewed three times. And I think on the third occasion, um, and, you know, put through the ropes, had to write news, had to read news, that sort of stuff as part of the application, and I remember in the, the very last um, interview where they um, asked me questions, they asked about my kind of political allegiance, you know, and I found that really interesting that they thought that somehow, you know, my politics was a threat to my journalism. And, you know, I didn't have outwardly radical politics, but um, I knew a lot about current affairs and I was interested in kind of Indigenous affairs and I was interested in particularly in prisons and and I guess what you would say is the underdog or the the marginalised communities and and that was perceived as a political allegiance or alliance that would undermine the objectivity I would need to apparently have as a journalist Mm. and I've always thought that was the reason why I missed out. I actually you know ended up third on the list and there were two cadets and you know, so I did pretty well, but I think that that difference was probably the thing that meant that I missed that opportunity. Um, 
it was which was really interesting for me I didn't read it as a sign then but looking back I see it as that and the ABC especially I think um at that time was a lot of the staff had been there for a long time from the 50s and 60s and it was a very inwardly looking um, organization it was like walking into a completely different world people think differently they see the world differently um, and they think that their way of seeing and the world is the right way and I think I'm really describing here what a lot of people in the media in the mainstream media the kind of mentality that it takes to mm to work in those organisations. You have to learn to speak with authority. Um, you know, you quote and, and appear to be well-read and you always have to kind of in conversations be informed and, and appear to be informed. And, you know, it leads to a very tricky work culture um, when you're in working in teams, going to meetings and listening to discussions. You're... You know, it's quite an interesting kind of experience. I, I remember yeah. when I went into the ABC full time, you know, so I, I worked casually as a journalist after missing out on the cadetship, and, um, but I never liked it. So I, I opted to sort of go and, and work in community radio at 4 Z as a journalist and then at 2SCR in Sydney as a journalist. And then I came back to the ABC a few years later as the presenter and the executive producer of a women's program called The Coming Out Show, and um, which was quite radical and, and quite an interesting program. And, yeah, I remember being asked by a really good friend of mine, you know, uh, one of the Indigenous broadcasters that I've worked with, what are you doing at the ABC? And I, I said to them, you know, I'm studying whiteness. And... And that, for me, you know, it was the early 90s before whiteness was really even, was just coming into being a thing. Um, it was like that. It was like you were kind of on another planet and you were kind of looking at what the, you know, <laughs> the people in on this planet and how and what their behaviours and customs yeah. were. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's so much focus on getting people in there in like these elite spaces but there's not enough work being done to support them once they get into these spaces i think more has to be done and i was wondering because in the abc article they talked about how young not young but how staff were kind of um their ideas were discarded you know um they basically were made to feel like like what they had to contribute wasn't valuable and i was wondering was that your own experience? And why do you think not much has changed? Yeah, it's interesting because it's like fundamental to the idea of trying to make the Australian media more diverse in a cultural, racial way. Um, you know, diversity also applies to, to gender and to, um, you know, disability, of course, as well. And the ABC does track all of those statistics. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, like what you're saying undermines the very thing that so many diversity activists are asking for, which is, you know, the idea that if we employ more people in 
the media, people of colour and Indigenous people, that the media output, the content, will change. And, you know, that's really kind of one of the fundamental questions of what I've been thinking about, I guess, as I come to the end of my career. And, um, you know, it, it, it's the roots of that idea. It's never actually been researched that no one's ever kind of gone and said, well, look, let's see how the content changed here or whatever. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of an assumption that mm. this will happen. And no one really looks at what happens when people get employed in media organisations. And, you know, the first kind of thing is just the culture of the work workplace. And, you know, I've thought a lot about is a media workplace different to other workplaces? And I talk to people about that when I interviewed producers who'd worked at the ABC. And I also, you know, talk to people in community radio too because I think there's also kind of a different set of challenges for, for people of colour and Indigenous people in community radio. But, you know, what both community radio and ABC have in common is that they are predominantly white spaces. And this is what we're talking about, is what happens when people of colour and Indigenous people walk into white spaces. And, you know, I mean, there's been some good work done about um, Indigenous people who have worked in public service um, that has kind of brought out some of those issues. And, you know, like there's similar stuff to what both I experienced and um, what I found out in doing research is, you know, first of all, you're seen as being someone who is a servant to the white people. So, you know, like it's not just that you get asked questions continuously about stuff. It's the kind of, ridiculousness of the questions that you're asked that is the stuff that really gets to you after a while and and you know it comes back to this thing of like studying whiteness and the weirdness of people mm. who for me at least just didn't have the same way as seeing the world like it it, it was like they went home to something completely different to what I did in 2020 the organisation Media Diversity released a paper called Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories. I know you spoke to Arij Noor about that. In that paper, they talked about how some news leaders were, you know, very critical of things like quotas and targets. And I was wondering, is that something that is useful? Just your thoughts on quotas. Look, I'm not against it. Um, and I do think that there is something to be said for um, organising organizations tracking the data I think it tells one part of the story and having targets kind of I guess puts pressure on them but really more than anything the reality in places like the ABC the targets just tell you how much they're failing rather than succeeding mm. in a lot of cases not in all cases like I think um, it, they probably have reached their targets for women definitely, and um, Indigenous people, largely to the credit of the Indigenous people within the organisation fighting for it. Um, but, yeah, look, I'm not against targets. What I am, I guess, critical of is the idea that um, parity, that somehow the outputs of the content relies on the number of people in the organisation who are people of colour or Indigenous people. It just doesn't work like that it's so problematic and I think you know the calls for more faces on screens especially 
um, and sometimes they say voices on mic, but more likely it's about um, being seen to be diverse um, rather than being heard to be diverse, being listened to as diverse. Um, you know, I think it's much more complex than, than you know, how many people of colour and Indigenous people are working in the organisation. Yeah, because it makes no sense. Because even in the ABC article, they talk about how it's slowly changing. There's more diverse voices being included, but their contributions, as I said earlier, aren't being valued. So there's no point of having like 10 people if we're never going to hear from those 10 people. It really comes down to, I think, um, for me anyway, to I kind of move away from using the the word diversity in relation to the media. And and I want to talk about kind of media justice. I want to really think about what's fair in terms of coverage. And um, that then starts to blow apart the whole kind of POC problem too, which is we're not all the same and we're Mm. all treated differently in media representation. And so, you know, like, just because you actually have a whole lot of people who aren't necessarily maligned in the media um, working for you doesn't mean you've addressed the problems of the unfairness of media coverage to, say, young black men or, and I'm talking about both kinds of black there, and or, you know, um, the criminalisation of certain communities um, where others uh, don't, don't experience that so you know for me the focus is very much around listening and not looking not being fooled by the smoke and mirrors of the appearance of diversity and then also it's about um kind of media justice like really thinking about what's fair um about about coverage and what's unfair and which communities are the ones that are most maligned at the moment. And that was Nicola Joseph explaining the differences between tokenism and media justice. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Woman on the Line. So up now is my conversation with researcher Shally Mackley about abortion care in Australia. If this type of content is a trigger for you, please skip this segment. For support, call Lifeline on 131114. My name is Shelley Macleff. I'm a research fellow at Monash University in the School of Public Health and Preventive Medicine, and I focus on global and women's health. Roe versus Wade was a landmark case that essentially legalised abortion. It recently was overturned, and call me naive, but I was pretty surprised by the outcome. 50 years on, and we're still fighting for abortion care. Why? I unfortunately was not surprised. Um, As someone who grew up in the United States, I've been very aware that there's been a long strategy from people who are anti-abortion to continue to make abortion more challenging. Um, And this includes protests outside of clinics and um, really threatening abortion providers and making it difficult for people who are seeking abortion care to get that. Um, And that's partly, as you say, related to stigma. It's a feeling that abortion, stigma is defined as a feeling that abortion is morally wrong or unacceptable. Um, And so that comes from social norms about uh, femininity and about motherhood and about the appropriate role for women. And uh, the 
what drives the stigma can be when people feel that people are transgressing this norm. And so uh, this, of course, is not something that is felt by everyone, but the people who do have these, these beliefs try to shame and stigmatize people who are seeking abortion and also providing abortion. And this creates uh, an environment of silence and of taboo and of fear that can also get in the way of people accessing the care they deserve and need. The outcome of Roe versus Wade sent shockwaves around the world. It got people like me thinking about reproductive rights closer to home and what needs to be done. So what are the barriers to abortion care in Australia? It's a really important question and one that I've been looking at in my research over the last six months. So people around Australia have told me that it is challenging to get an abortion and that the barriers often intersect. So for example, if someone lives in a regional area, they may need to travel further to get an abortion because there's no clinic or hospital in their area. They're also potentially more worried about stigma because they live in a small town and if their doctor knows that they want an abortion, word might get out. Uh, Someone told me they work at a Catholic school. They don't want their employer to know that they want an abortion because they're actually worried they'll lose their job. Um, Also, once you have to travel further for abortion care, you may have to pay more. You may need to get childcare. So all of these barriers come together and they tend to most impact people who are already vulnerable or disadvantaged. And so it's very important to understand that the barriers to care are very real in Australia, despite the privilege that we have that it is legal here. Cis people aren't the only community facing barriers to reproductive health care. Trans and non-binary people also feel excluded from our healthcare system. I asked Shelley what those barriers look like for gender diverse people. So um, the evidence around the world shows us that um, trans and non-binary people have barriers to healthcare, and these relate to stigma as well. So their fear of being judged, their fear of being mistreated, even denied care, um, discrimination um, can look like misgendering. People might go to a clinic and the form will say man, woman, or male, female, and they don't feel like the clinic understands and and accepts them for who they are. So just the way that our society and also our healthcare system have a gender binary as a default, that in and of itself can be a barrier to healthcare. Um, And a study in the United States by uh, Ibis Reproductive Health, which is a wonderful feminist research organization, found that transgender, non-binary, and gender expansive people um, are more likely to consider managing their own abortion without the guidance or clinical supervision of someone in the healthcare system. Now, we're very lucky now that self-management of abortion is safe because of abortion pills. And there have been studies that show that managing your own abortion with a proper instruction, which can be really easily accessed online, is safe. But that doesn't mean that people shouldn't feel safe to access healthcare. So I think that the fact that people are self-managing because they don't want to interact with healthcare providers really shows that the health system is not meeting the needs of trans and non-binary folks. Now that we have a better scope of the problem, what can be done to improve abortion access? I think that, first of all, having comprehensive sexuality education is really important. Young people deserve to learn about all of their options, about how to be active health consumers, to know their rights to health care, so that they can begin to engage in their sexual lives with the information they need to make informed decisions. So I think that's really, really important. 
Um, in addition, there should be lower costs to access abortion. People have told me that it can cost hundreds between $400 and $700. And for many people, that's really a barrier. So Medicare rebates should be higher. And people who don't have Medicare, perhaps because they don't have permanent residence or citizenship here, there should also be ways to support them to get care so that it's not disproportionately burdening them. Um, healthcare providers and everyone at the clinic from the receptionist through the nurse through the doctor need to be trained to treat people with respect so that they're not saying discriminating or rude things to people who are seeking abortion care. We see an unfortunate amount of people who are saying that they're being mistreated when they're seeking care and that shouldn't be happening. So those are some of the things that I think we could do to improve. There are many more as well. The overturning of Roe versus Wade to me raises concerns that anti-abortion, sorry. Uh, the overturning of Roe versus Wade to me raises concerns that people who are anti-abortion will feel emboldened. And that might mean more protests, um, more stigma. And I just think it's important for all of us to continue the work to normalize abortion. Talk about it with your friends, be open about it. It's another healthcare procedure. It's a experience people can talk about and people have lots of emotions related to that experience just like they do for any healthcare service. But I think we need to bring abortion out of the shadows and really into something that's just a normal thing that we talk about. So that's something we can all do in our daily lives to help uh, destigmatize and, and ensure access to care. Thank you so much to Shelley McLeod for coming on the show. Shelley and others from Monash University are looking for participants for their study about abortion experiences in Australia. If you'd like to learn more about the study, email the group at studyrecruitmentgwh at monash.edu. We'll also share a direct link to the study on our 3CR page at 3cr.org.au forward slash woman on the line. And that's all from us this week.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.